Hello, my name is Harold Hongju Ko. I'm the dean and the Gerard C. and Bernice Latrobe Smith Professor of International Law at Yale University Law School in New Haven, Connecticut, USA. Uh, I am delighted to join this illustrious lecture series as part of the audiovisual library of international law, uh, which will be launched during the International Law Week of the United Nations in October 2008. I'm particularly grateful to two good friends and international lawyers, Dr. Manush Arsanjani and attorney Deirdre Shell and her colleagues at the Office of Legal Affairs of the United Nations for organizing these lectures and for inviting me to participate. Uh, the title of my lecture is From International Law to Transnational Law. And let me explain why I've chosen this topic, given my own background. I'm a Korean American. Uh, my father was a Korean ambassador to the United Nations in the early 60s from the Republic of Korea, then emigrated to the United States as an international lawyer. I studied at Harvard, Oxford University, and Harvard Law School. I was a law clerk to a, two federal judges, Malcolm Wilkie of the U.S. Court of Appeals and Justice Harry Blackman of the United States Supreme Court. I worked for a large international law firm, Covington and Burling of Washington, D.C., and then at the United States Department of Justice as an attorney in the Office of Legal Counsel in the early 80s. Uh, in 1985, I went to Yale Law School as a professor of international law. And in 1998 to 2001, I was Assistant Secretary of State for the United States for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Uh, after returning to Yale in 2001, I became the dean, although I continued to teach international law, particularly the subject of transnational law, transnational litigation, and international human rights. This lecture series consists of a collection of recorded lectures by legal scholars and practitioners from many different regions and legal systems on a broad range of topics in international law. The UN is uh, undertaking this project in hopes that it will be of enduring value for teaching and training purposes for the legal profession in both public and private sector. The reason I have chosen the subject of international to transnational law is because transnational law is the category that I most frequently address in my own teaching and scholarship in the United States. Students of international law are familiar with a traditional divide between public and private. Public international law governs relations among nation states, state to state relationships. The subject of private international law has traditionally governed relations among private persons in different countries. Uh, the term international law was coined by the philosopher Jeremy Bentham in 1789 to reflect an international horizontal law among nation states. He wrote about this in his introduction to the history of morals and legislation and suggested that there was a dualistic system in which international and domestic law were on separate planes. Uh, as time has moved along, these divides between public and private, domestic and international, have created a two-by-two two matrix with domestic and international on one side, public and private on the other side. And for much of the 20th century, in many parts of the world, students of law were taught 
according to this matrix, this two by two matrix. To take the United States curriculum, you studied a domestic private subject, torts and contracts, about domestic private relations between private individuals. Later on, you might stu study a public domestic subject, such as constitutional law, the relationship between individuals and their government. You might, in the second or third year of your legal education, study private international law, for example, international commercial transactions, or ultimately public international law, for example, the law of war, the law of the environment, international human rights, or the like. My lecture is making a simple point. As many students know from watching the movies, the matrix is a construct. It is imposed, an intellectual idea which is imposed on reality. Uh, it creates this dichotomy. I would suggest that this is a uh, illusory, uh, hypothetical dichotomy, which does not really capture the state of law today. We have moved from what has been known as international law, the law between nations, to what I would call transnational law. Now this raises obvious questions, and those are the four subjects I would hope to address in today's lecture. First, what exactly is transnational law? Second, why does transnational law matter? Why should we study it? Third, what are some features of transnational law? And I will mention three, what I call transnational legal process, transnational legal substance, and the rise of transnational public law. And finally, fourth and finally, how the study of transnational law fits into a school of international legal jurisprudence which has uh, venerable roots. And for shorthand purposes, I will call it the New New Haven School of International Law, a school associated with Yale University where I've spent my legal career. So those are the four elements of my lecture. What is transnational law? Why does it matter? What are its elements? And how does the study of transnational law fit into the new New Haven School of International Law? What is transnational law? Uh, in as early as the second century, the Romans spoke of a jus gentium, common to all men, a law common to all individuals. And by the 16th and 17th century, legal scholars such as Grotius, Vatel, Alberico Gentili did not draw a sharp distinction between domestic and international law. Instead, they viewed the law of nations as a universal law binding on all mankind, individuals and political entities alike. William Blackstone, in his commentaries, described the law of nations, quote, as a system of rules deducible by natural reason, established by universal consent among the civilized inhabitants of the world to ensure the observance of justice and good faith and that intercourse which must frequently occur between two or more independent states and the individuals belonging to each. Let me just repeat the key phrase, a system of rules deducible by natural reason to ensure the observance of justice in intercourse between two or more independent states, international law, and the individuals belonging to each. In other words, individuals are also participants 
uh, in the creation of the law of nations. And the law of nations traditionally did not respect the matrix, the dichotomy between public and private and international law. And so the law of nations included not just the law of states, in other words, the law governing international horizontal relations among states, for example, laws relating to ambassadors, to passports, to intergovernmental relations, but also to the law of maritime affecting shipwrecks, admiralty, the taking of prizes on sea, and the so-called law merchant or lex mercatoria applicable to transnational commercial transactions. And the reason that this is an important category historically is that in international commercial relations were not broken into public and private, domestic and international. An international trader, uh, T-R-A-D-E-R, who is selling and buying products in the bazaars of the Mediterranean is a transnational actor, just as much as a nation state. And rules governing whether that person has rights and duties under a contract that crosses borders are part of the law merchant, the lex mercatoria, the law of nations. The law of nations was ultimately brought to the new world by commercial activities and embedded in the West as part of the common law. And so the United States Constitution in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 10 authorizes the United States Congress to, quote, define and punish against his, uh, offenses against the law of nations. One such offense is the crime of piracy. Piracy is another example of a violation that can be committed by an individual who is, for all intents and purposes, a private citizen. So if a pirate uh, captures a ship illegally, that person is an individual. They are hostes humani generis, an enemy of all mankind. It should become clear that even from the early days of the study of international law, that activities could not be neatly packaged into this matrix of public versus private, domestic, and international law. And so in 1956, in his famous Storrs Lectures, the future judge of the International Court of Justice, Professor Philip Jessup, described a body of law he called transnational law. Quote, all law which regulates actions or events that transcend national frontiers, including public and private international law, plus other rules that do not wholly fit into such standard categories. And I would argue that the study of transnational law, not international law, is what is actually happening in most of the legal faculties, the law faculties around the world, including my own. The body of transnational law is described quite thoroughly, for example, in a document like the American Laws in Institute's Law of the Foreign Relations of the United States, which was published in 1986. And the category that used to be known as private international law has largely ceased to exist as an independent subject. Increasingly, uh, it is <coughs> part of international commercial transactions, international economic relations, or international business transactions. But this subject is no longer either domestic uh, and international, 
or public and private. It has elements of all of these. So what then is transnational law? Let me give an operational definition. Uh, transnational law is law that crosses boundaries. It is law that transcends the old dichotomies between domestic and international, public and private. And perhaps most important, it is a kind of hybrid law. It's neither purely domestic or purely international. Rather, it is a blend of the two. Perhaps the best way to think about this intuitively is the metric system a national concept or an international concept? The answer, of course, is it is both. The metric system is adopted as an international standard, but is also adopted and internalized into each nation of the world. Or give another example from the computer world, dot com. Is that an international phrase or a domestic phrase? Again, the answer is that it is a hybrid of the two. Virtually every nation of the world uses the term .com in assigning a website name to a particular entity, but it also has a well-recognized international meaning. This brings me then to the end of uh, the first part of this lecture and to the second part. Why does this transnational law matter? If transnational law exists, which crosses boundaries, which transcends the distinction between public and private, domestic and international, which is a hybrid law, why is it important? And there are four simple reasons. First, much of the law that uh, lawyers deal with, public and private, every day in every nation in the world is now transnational law, a blend of international and domestic. Second, transnational law is an important feature of law and globalization. Third, transnational law is a means by which international law can be enforced. And finally, transnational law influences government policies, government policies that govern uh, the citizens of any given country. Uh, let me elaborate on these four points. Increasingly, the subjects that are taught at a faculty of law are transnational subjects. So let me give some examples. In any modern curriculum of legal education, you would see such subjects as immigration and refugee law. Is that purely domestic? No, it's domestic and international, a hybrid blend. In other words, transnational law. What about international business transactions or commercial law or international trade? This is another subject which blends private and public, domestic and uh, international. What about foreign relations or national security law? Another subject in which, for example, the Geneva Conventions or the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or the Domestic Bill of Rights might all be invoked. A quintessentially transnational subject. What about law of cyberspace? Again, the rules are hybrid rules, not clearly in one category or the other. Environmental law, the same. Development law, the same. More and more of national law is really transnational law. Just to take an example, anyone who watches a television uh, show or a, a DVD will see at the beginning, warning, uh, this uh, 
uh, movie is protected by Interpol as well as by rules of the World Intellectual Property Organization that are set forth into national law. What they're saying is that essentially uh, the copying of that uh, film is prohibited uh, by a combination of domestic and international law or international law which has been internalized into domestic law. In each of these areas of law, global standards are being integrated and internalized into the domestic legal system. Second, transnational law is a feature of law and globalization. We talk often of globalization. I see globalization as having three elements. The law of globalization, the law as globalization, and the law in globalization. By the law of globalization, I would say that increasingly new subjects are emerging in the legal curriculum. Transnational law is now its own subject. Like human rights, like international business transactions, it's part of a distinctive law of globalization. Second, what is globalization? The spread of certain phenomena around the world affecting individuals, organizations, and governments Increasingly, the global spread of law mirrors the global spread of culture, commerce, uh, art, sports. Law is a globalizing phenomenon. The law itself is an aspect of globalization. And finally, and most important, I would argue, the law in globalization. Why is transnational law important? Because our goal is not just globalization, which will happen no matter what we do, but a process of humane globalization, globalization in which human concerns are taken into account. And I would suggest that transnational law can play a, tr a critical role in promoting globalization with the human face. A third reason that transnational law is important is it is a means of enforcement. Consider two modes of enforcement of international law. The traditional mode is what could be called horizontal enforcement. So if uh, two nations battle over an issue and one nation disagrees with the other, the primary mode of enforcement has thought to be, been thought to be horizontal enforcement between the two nation states at the same level. I would argue, however, that the key mode of enforcement is actually not government to government enforcement at a horizontal level, but vertical enforcement between the global and domestic level. The extent to which the international norms are brought down into the domestic legal system. You could call it domestication. What I prefer is norm internalization. Uh, in my own writing, I've argued that the internalization of international norms into domestic law is a prime method of enforcement. So let me give an example. <clears throat> uh, the Lex Mercatoria began as international law rules operating in an international sphere. So transnational activities in the Mediterranean bazaars were originally conducted between nation states. But as individuals entered the process as merchants, those rules became transnational rules. 
They were brought to Europe by English merchants. They were domesticated into English common law. When the United States was formed, those English common law rules of commerce migrated to the United States and became part of American commercial law. Ultimately, in the 1900s, they were codified into statute, the Uniform Commercial Code, which is now the law of 49 states of the United States and the District of Columbia. And then the UN Convention for the International Sale of Goods was adopted and entered into force in 1988. It overrides the Uniform Commercial Code. What I'm saying in a nutshell is that international commercial rules started at a public international level, became transnational law, became British law, became American law, and then ultimately became American statutory law and now treaty law around the world. Uh, and it is through the process of becoming part of a national legal system that it gains its force. I call this process transnational legal process. And this brings me into the third part of this lecture. How is transnational law enforced? Yeah, I would argue it's enforced through what I would call transnational legal process. In simple terms, transnational legal process means interactions which lead to interpretations of international law that are internalized into domestic law and standards, brought down into a domestic system. So for example, if a nation state ratifies the Refugee Convention, an international law norm, and then embeds those international law rules into domestic law, an interaction has in provoked an interpretation which has been internalized into domestic law. Take another example. If the Geneva Conventions uh, is uh, adopted and ratified and then is brought into domestic law through the Uniform Code of Military Justice in the United States, an interaction leads to an interpretation which leads to an internalization of international into domestic law. And <clears throat> I would argue that transnational legal process is a series of cycles of interaction, interpretation, and internalization which lead to global norms being brought into domestic legal systems and made part of domestic law. International law is brought home. The core idea of transnational legal process is very simple. People argue, why do nations obey international law? I would say most compliance comes from obedience. Most obedience comes from norm internalization. Most norm internalization comes from transnational legal process, uh, a process of interaction, interpretation, and internalization. To put these in common sense terms, uh, I do not smoke cigarettes. Why is that so? It could be because I'm afraid of being punished for smoking cigarettes. I could fear coercion. It could be because smoking cigarettes in a restaurant has been made illegal, in which case I'm complying with that rule. But the fact of the matter is long ago I decided that it was a bad idea. That was a norm. I internalized that standard and it's part of my internal value set. 
and I obey it like many other norms, such as thou shalt not kill, respect thy mother and father. These are rules or norms that have been internalized. My compliance comes from my obedience. My obedience comes from my norm internalization. And the same is true of international law. As you know uh, from your experiences with the law of the sea, traditionally there was a three-mile territorial limit which was changed through the process of the law of the sea convention into a 12-mile limit. Most nation states shifted from a three-mile limit to a 12-mile limit. And why did they do that? Because the international rule was uh, interpreted and then internalized into domestic legal systems. The United States of America, for example, still has not ratified the Law of the Sea Treaty, but it has adopted the 12-mile limit as U.S. domestic law by executive order. In short, it has internalized this norm. And I would argue that this transnational legal process helps us to understand why nations obey international law. To give an example from my own country, in the United States of America, a international rule can become domestic law because the executive branch adopts it. For example, the president could issue an executive order. Uh, there could be a government agency created like the uh, Department of Commerce, which follows international trade rules. Uh, it can be internalized by Congress, adopting international legal standards into domestic statutory law, or it could be internalized by the courts, the national courts, construing national rules to be consistent with international standards. A very high-profile example of this in recent years has been the battle over whether torture, uh, the prohibition against torture, is a rule of U.S. law. It had been part of the rule because of the domestic Eighth and Fifth Amendments to the United States Constitution. Uh, the Bush administration argued for a narrow interpretation of torture, which would exclude it from applicability in international law. The Congress passed a statute, the so-called McCain Amendment to the Defense Authorization Act, which sought to restore torture as a rule of national law. The U.S. courts, in a line of decisions from Falardiga versus Peña Irala to Sosa versus Alvarez Machine, decided in 2004, uh, consistently held that torture is a tort in violation of the law of nations. And the struggle over internalization of the norm against torture in U.S. law continues even as I speak. <clears throat> in addition to what I call transnational legal process, which is a process which cuts across subject matter areas of law. There is what I would call transnational legal substance. We're familiar with substantive rules of law that apply in transnational settings. I've given some examples from the international commercial environment. For example, the Uniform Customs and Practices for Documentary Credits, the international finance terms used by the clearinghouse interbank payment system, the interregulatory rules created by regulatory bodies such as the Basel Committee of Central Bankers, the international laws of cyberspace, 
which come from domain names developed by ICON, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Network Names. This is a body called transnational private law since it largely concerns private individuals. What I would say is the most interesting development in transnational legal substance is the rise of what I would call transnational public law. Transnational public law is <coughs> public law norms that have arisen in many countries in the world affecting public issues. Certain terms have the same meaning in every national system. Cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, for example, civil society, the internally displaced, trans-border trafficking. Each of these are areas in which different countries of the world are arriving at the same standard as part of uh, a system of transnational law. And increasingly, the subjects of universal concern in law faculties, uh, international human rights, the law of democracy, international environmental law, law and public health, the law of refugees, is transnational public law. And I would argue that as legal education progresses in the 21st century, increasingly we will shift our focus toward the study of transnational public law. Uh, this is a common phenomenon in the United States, my home country. Before 1945, much of the legal education was about domestic private subjects. After that, the New Deal and the focus on public law, the law of anti-discrimination, there's an increasingly focus toward domestic public law, issues of equal protection and due process of law. The domestic public law movement accelerated. And I would argue the parallel trend today in the 21st century is toward transnational public law. To give some examples, in a traditional uh, Anglo-Saxon law curriculum, there was the study of torts, wrongs against individuals. Increasingly, this includes the study of Alien Tort Claims Act in the United States, international human rights wrongs visited by one person against another. For example, Radovan Karadzic uh, against uh, individuals in the war in Bosnia. There is transnational criminal law, which involves uh, litigation about terrorism and drug trafficking. There is transnational procedure, which is increasingly addressing the relationship between domestic and international courts. And there is comparative constitutional law, common constitutional law principles uh, with regard to human rights uh, and uh, constitutional structure. So what I'm saying is that increasingly we are seeing what could be in computer terms international law that is downloaded into the domestic legal system, international law which becomes part of transnational public law and the same concept in every country in the world. The due process of law is a domestic concept which has horizontal effect around the world. And third, ideas that are first uploaded and then downloaded into domestic law. The idea, for example, of uh, disappearances was first developed in a human rights setting in Latin America. It's been uploaded into international human rights law 
and now downloaded into other countries, uh, for example, in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, etc. This brings me to the fourth and concluding part of this lecture. If there is a body of law, a hybrid law that we call transnational law, if, as I've argued in the second part of the lecture, transnational law matters, Third, if transnational law consists of transnational legal process, transnational legal substance, and a growing body of transnational public law, how does this fit into international legal theory? And I would argue it's part of an emerging school of international law, which I call the New New Haven School of International Law, a school of international law traditionally associated with Yale Law School, of which I am the dean. Now, a school of thought is common in many fields of intellectual inquiry. We all know the famous portrait painting by Raphael, uh, the School of Athens, which shows Plato and Aristotle walking through uh, the School of Athens. This picture is actually a depiction of two schools of thought, the philosophical school of Athens and the Renaissance school of painting which captures this idea. In the same way, there are schools of international legal thought. And one of those schools is the so-called New Haven School of International Law. Uh, it included such individuals as Myers McDougall, Harold Laswell, at times Oscar Schachter, who later went to Columbia University. It involved fellow travelers like Kingman Brewster, who was president of Yale, although a professor at Harvard Law School, and a second generation, which includes President Rosalind Higgins of the International Court of Justice, Michael Reisman, my colleague at Yale Law School, Richard Falk of Princeton, Burns Weston of Iowa, John Norton Moore of Virginia, all contemporary members of the New Haven School of International Law. The New Haven School of International Law, which was founded in the 50s, was a school of legal realists that criticized legal formalism and criticized a structure of international law based solely on rules. And the emphasis was on process. As Myers McDougall wrote in 1953, we should not underestimate the role of legal processes in general and overemphasize the importance of naked power. There are some continuing themes of the, new new Haven, of the New Haven School. First, a commitment to interdisciplinary study in international law, particularly law and political science. Second, a commitment to the study of legal process. As Michael Reisman wrote in 1981, the New Haven School sees lawmaking as comprising a social process of lawmaking which has policy content, authority signals, and control intentions. Third, a commitment to normative values. The idea that international law is not just a body of rules, but a process of authoritative decision making dedicated to promoting certain normative values, particularly human dignity. Fourth, a commitment to connecting law and policy, not treating law as an independent entity from policy analysis. And finally, fifth and finally, a school that recognizes the emerging importance of transnational law, not just domestic and international law. While schools are products of their time, the 
New Haven School of International Law was a product of the Cold War period. We now live in a different political era. We live in a post-post-Cold War world after the fall, not just of the Berlin Wall, but of the Twin Towers. We live in a world of globalization. We live not in a world of competing ideological blocks, but a world, in Tom Friedman's world, words, which is f increasingly flat, in the sense that individuals, non-governmental organizations, intergovernmental organizations can be transnational decision makers and transnational threats. And we live in a different academic era in which the legal academy now regularly combines theory with practice in academic and clinical studies, blends public and private, domestic, international, and increasingly focuses on issues of globalization. In this era, I would argue, there is a new New Haven School of International Law, which is a dominant mode of discussion in the American Legal Academy, which is committed to the same five ideas as the original New Haven School. A commitment to theory and interdisciplinary studies, a commitment to the study of transnationalism, a commitment to the study of transnational legal process, a commitment to normative values such as human rights and human dignity, and a commitment to connecting law and policy through practice and public service. The new New Haven School increasingly says that international law should not be studied in isolation from domestic law. We should focus on the study of transnational legal process and transnational legal substance. It is a um, school which argues in favor of recognizing that there are multiple communities for law development, interpretation, and enforcement that recognizes that law can trickle down into domestic legal systems and bubble up to international law from domestic law that recognizes the importance of dialogue between domestic and international institutions. And perhaps most important, recognizes that the role of legal education and scholarship is to promote a more humane process of globalization through scholarly analysis as well as clinical analysis. And so many scholars who operate in this school are attempting to use international law and bring it home into domestic legal affairs. Just to give a recent example, the United States Supreme Court held that the President of the United States had to follow the Geneva Conventions with regard to terrorist detainees on Guantanamo. This was uh, a ruling which was designed to show that international standards have a function at home. I was asked in testimony about this subject by a United States Senator. He said to me, Professor, as far as I understand, the terrorists don't sign the Geneva Conventions. And I said to him, Senator, as far as I know, the whales don't sign the whaling treaty either. It's not a contract. It's not about them and who they are. It's about the United States and who we are. It's about minimal standards of human decency. It's about normative values in international affairs. And it, <clears throat> in closing, let me say that the central goal of a new New Haven School of International Law is to recognize the shift that international law has made. Before World War II, there was interstitial international law, state-centric rules, essentially 
marginal rules that were gap fillers. After World War II, an ambitious positive law framework grew up built around institutions and constitutions. Institutions like nation states, but also like the United Nations system. Constitutions like the international human rights covenants, the international environmental covenants, the economic covenants that were designed to organize a proactive assault on a broad, broad array of global problems. In this system, international law is not a straitjacket. It is not what some have called quaint. It is a creative medium for organizing the activities of transnational players who are making transnational legal substance within a transnational legal process with the goal of promoting human dignity. And so, in conclusion, let me say that we are increasingly moving from a study of international law to a study of transnational law. Transnational law is a kind of hybrid law which has been downloaded from international systems. The transnational law matters in a globalizing world. The transnational law is characterized by transnational legal process, transnational legal substance, and by an emerging body of transnational public law. And then increasingly, it's part of a jurisprudential movement in international law, what I call the new New Haven School, which sees the role of international and transnational law as creating a creative medium for humane globalization that can be conducted not just in a world of force, threats, and violence, but in a world of peaceful dispute settlement, creation of legal treaties and norms, diplomatic negotiations, and compliance that is based on internalization of rules into domestic legal systems. Uh, at the uh, website which includes this lecture, I will give some citations to various writings which can elaborate on these basic themes. But thank you very much for joining me for the lecture today.